0: Okay. Right, or to enforce imp- them, implement them most sometimes, but mostly to, to punish those who don't. So it doesn't matter because people actually don't think, and there's a culture as well of impunity, whereby basically people think they can always get away with not abiding by the law. It, it actually works that way, people get away with everything, and that's not acceptable.
1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the AOU podcast, Entrepreneur Leadership in Africa. I'm your host, Savannah Odo. This is season 3.0, where we explore and gain insights from mission-led leaders across the African continent and the globe. Do you have a dream you're working towards? Or maybe you're looking for the courage to finally chase it? Well, we'll give you all the insights and inspiration you need to go ahead and become world-ready. On this episode, we have our guest, Isabel Jenny. Who serves as a legal expert for Zenny Zeni Sustainable Finance? Today, we highlight legal work in public and corporate governance. We discuss key things such as bureaucracies between our corporate and public governance and Isabel's journey in legal work. I bet you didn't know what you'd really want out of the public sector coming straight out of corporate. I also bet you might want to get back if you're as passionate as Isabel is. Well, Isabel is here to give us the scoop on what legal work really is and what she did to get to where she is. So I suggest you buckle up and prepare your mind for all the gems of insight we're about to drop. So Isabel, it's so great to meet you and have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for taking time out to be with us today. Um, So I'm just going to set the mood to get you comfortable with, you know, (laughs) <laughs> the setting of the podcast and really essentially just have a conversation. So we usually kick it off with a small icebreaker, and um, my question for today is: What are the top two things on your bucket list that you'd like to do once all this COVID is over? Mm-hmm. Um, thanks for
0: having me, Savannah, and um, and everybody. I'm really honored to be here. Um, I think I mentioned that um, given the previous people um, on this podcast, I feel honored. Um, So thanks for having me. Ah, COVID, once it's over, will it ever be over? (laughs) I
1: I honestly don't think so, but we have to learn how to live with it. So what would you do once we've resumed some sort of normalcy?
0: (laughs) I would organize uh, two brunches. one with my extended family, I've missed um, seeing them, and one with my friends. So something really simple, and, um, and I'll be on the next plane to to visit uh, friends. And in I think I'll go to Douala, uh, in Cameroon, to Johannesburg, SA, uh, Lagos, Nigeria, and then Marrakesh, Morocco. Wow, that's such a very, very long
1: pocket <laughs> okay. list. But okay. so I, like, like that you, I like that you started off with like very, very intimate um, activities that bring the closest ones to you first and then like you go exploring the world after you've made sure that everyone's okay and everyone makes sure that you're okay as well.
0: Absolutely.
1: Yeah. yeah. All right. So Isabel, you studied law and most of your work and achievements were within that field. Why did you choose law? Hmm.
0: Um, I think it's a combination of many things. Um, so I think it's a sense of, or rather, a need for justice, um, because I've and, and experienced injustice in my in my in my life at at the, at that time already. Um, I, I know I was old, I, I, that happened to me already, and I was also probably greatly influenced by my faith. And my fascination, and and the fascination that people had for the legal profession in Africa at the time,
1: right. so
0: um, so not entirely. It wasn't. I, I think it was a sense, of, yeah, a, a great sense of um, a, a need for justice and for doing the right thing, and,
1: and yeah, yeah, definitely. But has it has it always been something that you wanted to do since you were young, or it's something that you sort of acquired a taste for the older you got.
0: I wanted, and um, when I was younger, um, I've, I've always loved languages, and I wanted to. I love traveling as well, so I I just wanted to um, to be. I, I, it's funny; it's a funny story because I, I wanted to work for the UN. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Really I saw something on TV. I know at some point, and people were doing um, translation I think um, work, and. Yeah. I just wanted to I, I just wanted to work for the, the UN and travel <laughs> to be a <laughs> diplomat at the time. So um and then and and I think uh growing up, I think that this sense of justice um became stronger and and law was just um reading law was was yeah, was just a normal a natural thing to do. Um but probably great, like I said, greatly influenced by the fact that, you know, a doctor or lawyer back in the days. Um, yeah, it
1: was a very deal, yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, uh, but absolutely no um, dictation or no direction given by my parents. Um, we've always been. You know. <laughs>
1: okay, that's great to hear. Because a lot of people are like, you know, um, it stems off from the cultural upbringing that, you have to be a lawyer a doctor an engineer to ensure that you're successful in your family but it's 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 refreshing to hear that um there's some households that allowed allowed a lot of people to be free in what they wanted to pursue in order for them to define their own level of success
0: yeah it, it was it was really I, i'm really grateful for that you know to have been given the opportunity to to do what i really
1: wanted to do at the time. I value it. <laughs> okay, so any this year, African countries agreed on having a free trade area. As a legal expert, what legal implications does this have on a country?
0: Hmm. Um, so I think, um, you know, what most countries, um, thought or most governments thought once um, the idea first um emerged and, and, and it was first decided to to agree to agree on that is that they'd have to um to to live out some of their um their um, resources and, and, and like you know financial resources that you know that they they had because of course um you have to um to look at tariffs you have to look at um you know visas for visas and 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 things like that so legal implications definitely would be that um for country to um to make sure that the legal system is um is um friendly is um afcft friendly basically Mm -hmm. um what would that mean um you need to upgrade your systems look at your um your laws and and make sure that they go, um, they're in line with with what you um, what you agreed, what we've signed we, we've signed up on. So I think one of the challenges I think is not so much the 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 tariffs part because actually some countries are bound to greatly benefit from it. And I think Cote d'Ivoire yeah. is one of them. I think. Our, um, revenues would grow by uh, 14%. Um, and I think next is Zimbabwe. And I think SA and um, Nigeria would only benefit 4%. Um, but it's not so much that. I think what really um, needs to be looked at is um, everything about, and, and that's going to be part of the the second kind of set of negotiations, is basically the, um, the rules about... Um, Private, not private information, but basically um, proprietary rights and and okay. uh, and all these rights that that because in a greater digitalized world, and I think it's um, it's fair to say that we will have to look at at those low. So phase two negotiation would be really important because um, you know they'll look at investment competition policy and. Um, all of the intellectual property rights, and I think that's where the the biggest challenge lies. Um, and and maybe to a lesser extent, um, you know, the visas, the the people uh, people crossing borders part about because obviously people get some countries get a lot of money, and, I, and I'm sure um, we all we've all you know, tried to travel to some countries and I've realized it's really expensive to pay um, for the visa within Africa and the oh, yeah. uh, expensive visa fees. So um, really upgrade the, the legal systems so that they really, um, then are in line with, uh, with the agreement. Knowing that um, some countries have already, you know, said that they wouldn't, they won't be um how can I say it? they won't be going um further in terms of um allowing people into their countries and 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 not everybody you know in 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 agreements like that some countries can opt out yeah on certain things and and some countries have already opted out so um so even in those cases uh, we need to make sure that the 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 legal systems follow and this is to avoid situations where there is room for um, cherry picking or forum shopping, which is basically what we're trying to avoid, right? By by, yeah. by, by seeing by saying the same rule applies everywhere, and and we really want to uh, make sure that we um, we foster intra in Africa trade. And so and and so basically, that's um, I think that's the biggest, uh, the most important thing in terms of legal. Um legal implication, uh, just make sure that we we upgrade the systems uh, properly and and this means that um, there's a, a lot of domestic regulations that constrain the we, we provide commercial services and things like that and, and yeah so so it's not only the regulatory regimes at the, at the borders but it's mostly behind borders because we have domestic regulations that actually um, uh, prevent some of those um, commitment that we made um, by, by signing up on the, on the AFCFTA um, to happen.
1: All right, so you've mentioned the AFCFT. Um, could you expound a bit more for those of us who don't know what it, it does, what it is, who it is, and what have you? OK, so it's basically
0: African countries who agreed to have, um, on having a free trade area. Um, so actually, it's, it's interesting that um, at some point, people realized that um, African countries were doing a lot of trades um, with non-African countries, but not as much um, with each other, right? And that there were significant barriers to trade um, between African countries, and that intra-Africa trade would actually be um, a way to um, to support our economies in in a, in a in a better way. And and I think it's really a system. It, it's it's something that's akin the um, what what the European Union and the EE uh, the the European Union um, you know countries decided years ago. I think it was in nineteen sixty seven or something like that yeah. first decided to, to get their own um, union and I think it's the same it, it, it works around four pillars um, so you basically have um, the or four freedoms you know remove barriers to the free movement of people uh, the free movement of capital uh, the free movement of goods and the free movement of services um, within um you know a group of countries uh, in this case within the um, african countries so and and this by doing this um we effectively effectively create um, a common market and and uh, we allow ourselves to do more business with each other and um and so because sometimes most times we've established that it was expensive for african countries to do to trade with non-African countries, um, you know, it was more expensive to, to do that sometimes to trade with African countries and uh, as opposed to trading with uh, non-African countries, we've now trying to um, reverse that, um, that that balance basically and, and make sure we do more um, within Africa and we allow um, African countries to, Trade with each other, citizen to, citizens to travel, um, establish businesses, and, and, and do that. So um, it's I think it's going, to, well, it is now the largest free trade area in the world by its size. Okay. So the yeah. market was 1.2 billion people um, at the time it was um, signed. And the combined uh, GDP, 2.5 trillion. Dollars.
1: Oh, that's remarkable.
0: <laughs> that's a lot. Um, is. very ambitious. <laughs> uh, knowing how our countries have been operating um, so far, but I think it's uh, it's it's a good um, step, uh, you know. And um, so, if we want to go more into detail, um, the member states. Um, have decided that they're going to liberalize 90% of tariff lines on goods uh, within up to 15 years, and that will, well, that is supposed to be happening um, through different rounds of negotiations. So they've done uh, round two of trade negotiations. So, um, you know, and I think they started with um, the easiest. And then the remaining 10% um, are really sensitive products. And for for those products, uh, they give themselves more time to to liberalize. And then they exclude those which are uh, completely exempt uh, from uh, liberalization. So thank you so much some is it is it clear or um yeah
1: yeah it is it is i can i can hear
0: you so it's it's basically um okay let me give a practical example uh, me being able to travel to essay without having to get a visa from the uh and pay for well without having to pay for the visa for the at the SA embassy and being able to set up a business in in essay um and being protected from expropriation once I'm settled in
1: SA and, and things like that. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much for that. And obviously this takes a lot of research before implementation. So what would you say is the biggest misunderstanding or misconception that people have about your legal work?
0: I think people, most people think that we are business stoppers. You know, mm-hmm. I used in uh, in investment banking and mm-hmm. with traders and investment bankers but mostly with traders and traders are people who are really in a hurry <laughs> they need to um you know to and and most business people in in banking are, and i think in any of our organizations are eager to you know um to close the deal as they say and they see us i think you know, as business stoppers, or they think we, we slow them down. You know, we ask for too many, too many documents. And actually we are business enablers and we protect right. them. And I think it's, it's been clear now with all the crisis that we've, we've experienced in the world. And I'm, you know, I'm mostly familiar with the '08 8 um, crisis. Yeah. And um, I was working in the bank, a Swiss bank at the time, a UBS Investment Bank. And believe me, um, one of the first people they turned to were the legal team to make sure that, to know which agreements we had in place and yeah. what those agreements said and what, prote- what kind of protection we had in those agreements. And I think, you know... That's, um, that says a lot. But yeah, they, they really think we, we are business stoppers. And, and so sometimes they try to bypass us, but usually it backfires.
1: <laughs> I honestly usually say that, that you can never be too careful, especially when it comes to legal work.
0: Absolutely. Um, you know, it's like, I don't know. It's for instance, and, and let's take something very basic. Um, you sign a contract whereby you have to um, to pay uh, x amount of money to somebody for the provision of uh, of goods, yeah. and you don't have a provision in this contract which uh, states what what you sh- you should do when the the person is unable to deliver the deliver the the goods on time, right, mm-hmm. and then. And then something happens, and they don't deliver it to you. You have another contract uh, with somebody else, and um, which basically um, depends on 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 that on you getting the the goods delivered to you on time. And and so if you don't do that, the other contract actually says that you have to pay something, or you you have a fine, or you know whatever works, or so you have a you know uh, some sort of. Provision that says that you, you you you're gonna have to you're gonna get less money or you won't get paid or something like that. But the other contract, yeah. um, then it means you're not protected. The client, your client is protected, but you're not protected. Oh, so okay. um, so that something very simple basically. It's just making sure that things work. It's like a puzzle, and sometimes there are missing pieces. And you need to have the protection and you need people to sit down and think about the unthinkable. You don't even think people, like, look at COVID, right?
1: (laughs) You really (laughs) have to think outside the box there. (laughs)
0: Absolutely, to really think, you know, not even like, you know, really think about, okay, um, what if, yeah, lawyers are those people who think, what if? Yeah. So, of course, granted, some people are, I really paid a lot to tell you what if, (laughs) and tell you about what happens, what if, but yeah, so.
1: All right. So, what would you say was the biggest misconception you had about the public and corporate worlds until you experienced them both? Maybe you can give us um, two examples each. (laughs) Okay.
0: And, you know, before joining the public sector, because I've spent most, most of my career in, in the private sector, and mm-hmm. I had a lot of okay. I I thought the public sector was highly inefficient, at least from what I knew about my own um, yeah. country. Um, highly inefficient. I thought it was a lot of, um, you know, I I think it was it was overcrowded with lots of people who didn't need to be there. So I thought we needed to um, make sure we had less people doing more work. <laughs> so I was very private sector and maybe, <laughs> maybe oriented. And uh, I thought the private sector was really very efficient and uh, could get things done. Uh, why was it perception? Because, um, you know, depending on the type of organization, the country, the governance, the, you know, and how things are set up and who, um, and what systems you have in place, what, how strong your institutions are. Uh, you can have a very um, strong um, public sector. And I met, um, I met people in the public sector who were not lazy, the lazy people I thought they were. Um, I also thought they, it was full of a lot of corrupt people. Um, I actually found those corrupt people there. Um to be really honest, and um, no, but <laughs> really and um, and um, but you also find corrupt people in the in the private sector, and um, and I realized you need corrupt people on both sides for the corruption to actually happen, which is really sad. Um, and and um, and yes, so, Biggest misconception, because um, I, I found really smart people, um, strong people doing, you know, an amazing work. So I, I actually gained a newfound respect for the public sector, and I, you know, the challenges that that people in the public have to have to face are no less than those that um, that people usually uh, deal with in in the private sector. So, um, so yes, huge misconception. some some truths, that, but you know, overall, I would say, um, I was I was quite um, severe with uh, with the public sector, but we, we we have to be because you know um, they decided to um, to protect the public interest, and and that's a big commitment to make. So you need to live by it.
1: All right. So you've you've already mentioned maybe, maybe a, a partial reason as to why you probably joined the public sector, but what actually motivated you to join the public sector after many years in the corporate world?
0: <laughs> I was actually very reluctant, um okay. to the public sector
1: because of all the,
0: the reasons I, I mentioned before. Mm-hmm. Um what made me join? I was very critical at the time of um of the public sector, very vocal. You know, I would rant on I, I don't do that anymore, but I would go and rant on Facebook at the time, you know, that was the only <laughs> the only place where, you know, and and you know, rant about the customs, you know, complain, you know, really get mad. And then um at the time I was also part of the African Leadership Network, and we had those really, we had a... An annual gathering. And, and, and during that time, we had really um, deep conversations about how to make things better, intra Africa trade, actually. Uh, that was one of the things that we discussed. Um, but really, how to make the public sector in Africa more efficient. And mm-hmm. one of the things that was said uh, from people who had done it before um, was basically that we needed more people from the private, private sector in the public sector to kind of give that mindset of um, result, um, focus, focus on results, right? Okay. And so um, so you know the gathering usually happens in November of each year. And that same November, um, a young minister was appointed as minister of budget in my country and um, and asked me to join. Um, and it was right after the ALN gathering Usually, after the ALN gathering, I was pumped up, ready to fire. I thought
1: I could do anything. <laughs> anything in the world and so conquer, conquer all the problems in Africa. <laughs> I know, so crazy. Um,
0: so the minister at the time asked me to, to join his team and, and work on all the things I was ranting about. And he was like, well, you keep saying that, you know, this bothers you, this and that bother you. So you would have an opportunity to work on that and improve the governance. You complain about corruption. You would have the opportunity to, to fight that. Um, also one of the reasons was I, I came across a contract, um, that was, um, a commitment from my country at the time it was signed, it was public and, um, it was a, I think, a thirty-year commitment, and I read it, and I was like, "Oh my God, who negotiated this?" And because I was not protective of the best interests of my country, and I was like, "That's written," you know. I thought I could do so much better, and I think there was a lot of, a, a bit of, um, and and I and I and I really want, a, yeah. And if I knew the person I had, you know, ranted about at the time, I would have apologized to them, because. <laughs> Because not, it's not, it's not down to the person negotiating the agreement to to make the final decision on, on, on what gets signed. Sometimes, yes. Yeah. Uh, so yes, yeah. so uh, so so really, a sense of um, I, I really wanted to serve my country. You know, um, you know, do better, um, improve the governance. You know, I was dealing at, I, I was at EcoBank at the time. Um, yeah. You And I was dealing with a lot of state-owned entities, state-owned companies. And I used as a legal person at EcoBank, when we needed to to sign a contract with, um, and that's an example for you, to sign a contract with one of those state-owned entities. There are basic documents that you ask when you're entering into a relationship with a a company you've never dealt with before. Apart from the basic KYC document, there are documents that you, you need from them. And they were not able to provide me with those documents. You know, and, and sometimes it would take them ages, sometimes they wouldn't be able to provide those documents. So I was really, um, you know, upset about that. And I thought, well, it's really simple. You need to do X and Y and Z and, and, and why not do that? And so because I was very vocal um, and that uh, minister at the time asked me to join his team and I was just out of ALN. And pumped up, and I thought, yeah, could do I can do it <laughs> yeah, that's how i um that's how I got into the the public
1: sector, all right, great, so given your experience, given that you've experienced it firsthand, do you think our governance systems have the capacity to effectively address the challenges we face today? Oh no, um <laughs> why not? <laughs> um... Your response is quite quick. <laughs> So
0: no, because, okay, I'll tell you what, we have, we have two things. We have, you have the, you know, in any, in any system, you have the executive power, you have the judicial power, you have the legislative power, right?
1: Okay.
0: You, um, so the executive can go to the legislative to get things approved. And and then the judicial is supposed to, uh, to, to bring that balance. So if there's something that, that is not working, you know, and they need to be separate. And and the issue with our systems is we have beautiful laws, beautiful laws, but most of them don't have, um, 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 how do we say that? They don't have ways to um, execute them or implement them? No, to punish those who don't. Okay. Okay. Right. Or enforce them implement them most sometimes but mostly to um, to to punish those who don't so um, it doesn't matter because people actually don't think and there's a culture as well of of how can, of impunity right by basically people think they can always get away with not um, applying the law not abiding by the law right? Yeah. And it, it actually works that way. People get away with everything and, and that's not acceptable, you know, because you can pretty much, and it's really, and I, you know, and it's really sad that I have to say that, but you can pretty much basically go and pay any, you know, people and, 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 and get a judgment against, you know, um, anybody. Yeah. If you have enough money. And I, I wouldn't say it's everybody in the judicial, judicial system, but it's enough people to to build a reputation, and that's bad. Yeah. So if you have that reputation; it's 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 not working. So the systems uh, need to have um, that. You know, you you need to be mm-hmm. able to punish those who don't um, abide by the law, and we have a culture as well of. Um, forgiveness in Africa that needs to stop. Basically what happens is somebody does something wrong, illegal. Um, they know you are the person supposed to be, you know, saying the, you know, bringing the sentence, or I don't know, deciding on their fate. And then they'll go to somebody you have a lot of respect for and tell them to come with them to beg for your, your forgiveness. What, what is that? <laughs> you know, it's it's really unfortunate, and and I think it's it's not fair that um, some people because some people just respect the law, so it's unfair to them, right? So if yeah. I if I do everything by the book, and you know, and people who don't have the, the same treatment as I have, as you know, it's not fair. And it's not fair to the people who actually depend on—I don't know—something for something simple as people paying their tax. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I think it's—it's um, they are not built. And what we would need was would really be um, the the end of the the culture of impunity.
1: At AOU, we believe in missions, not majors. This is why we are introducing a new program called the Bachelors of Entrepreneur Leadership. It is a one-of-a-kind program equipping you to be consequential and ignite a ripple of change in the world. Are you looking to become the ultimate problem solver, an entrepreneur leader that makes all the difference in the community and the world? Join ALU and begin your entrepreneurial journey. To learn more about Bachelors of Entrepreneur Leadership, visit our website, www.aoueducation.com. Come lead a mission-led life. Okay, great. Thank you so much for that. So how has your experience- Was I blunt? No, no, no. Actually, we encourage that on the podcast. You need to be, it's a safe space and you're open to, you know, <laughs> bring out how passionate you feel about the country's governance and, you know, how things should be working to make it a better place and more, you know, accessible to people who don't have access to the systems, you know. Mm.
0: And, and and it's really, it's not once you once you leave a bridge like um open, there's like everybody is going to get into it. So so you need to be so there's no room for yeah, there's no room for for people not abiding by the law. At least let's 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 respect the laws that we 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 enact for ourselves. Because otherwise there's mm-hmm. point. They're really beautiful and and lying in, in books or paper and And then nothing happens.
1: All right. So how has your experience as the advisor of the Minister of Budget of Cote d'Ivoire changed your perception of the public sector? I I know you already um, sort of kind of uh, touched on this when you're talking about your experience in the public sector. But also, how has it benefited you in the roles that you've taken after?
0: Um, So one thing I would say is I learned a lot, um, so so I had that really. Um, um, how can I? The, the, this really um, reduced perception of the of the public sector. It was reduced to you know this is a bunch of people they're corrupt, uh, you know uh, they're lazy they're not doing their work, you know that that was really negative. Um, yeah. I actually um, have a different view now, and. And I think it's only fair to people in the public sector that I actually get to say that um, that you have a system, you have people who work under very hard, um, uh, under challenging uh, conditions sometimes. And looking at you know the the work you know the work conditions, you you see the, the kind of um, the quality of the work that they they. they you know they're they're doing. So I've I've seen people who are really um, serving their country, fighting for you know for for the best interest of the country. Um, so it's changed my perception because I also it's a lot of work because mind you we are um, this the country is developing right. We're still you know trying to get to that. Emerging um, kind of um, um, market kind of um, status. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot to do. Um, you have the health sector, you have the education, you have the, you know, it, it's a lot of work. And where do you even start? So um, I think. I have a lot of respect for the people which is why we can't and, and I think um, my faith says it but, but we, we can't really judge until you've 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 you've, um, you've been in in somebody's shoes it, it's really tough it's a lot of work and where do you it's like having one thousand um, you know U.S. dollar or, or CFA franc or you know one thousand of any currency and each each ministerial department needs 1000 how do you do that how do you do the the do you make the, the arbitrage the arbitration like how do you decide on on who gets what of course you know uh which departments get you know you, you know you have your priority um sectors and all but then it depends um you know are you a is it a a a socialist government or is it a capitalist government? You know, those will have an implication as well. Um, you know, if you want to do, are you trying to um, to make sh- sure that you have enough, uh, what we call pro-poor expenses, that you focus on health, education, and, and things like that? Are you looking at climate change? Are you even looking at things like that? So it's really, it's really tough. So I have a newfound... Um, I, I gained, I think, more respect for those people. And, and I really have to apologize for people in, in the public sector I, I used to um, rant about before. Um, but then again, uh, it's not enough. Um, yeah. So, so there's a lot to be done. And, and better governance, um, you know, and, and less corruption would definitely make a
1: difference. So how has this benefited you in the roles that you've taken after?
0: It's definitely benefited me because I have a broader view. You know, before, before joining the public sector, I was sitting um, in the private sector and I was dealing with the public sector without knowing the challenges they were uh, experiencing every day, without understanding the, the, the kind of uh, arbitrage they needed to do, um, yeah. you know. In order to, to to get to um to, to get a deal or, or get um, a loan or or, or get uh, you know some money financing, so it it's given me a bigger uh, the bigger picture, and definitely um made me aware of of um what we call I was blindsided and somehow, and I'm sure I'm. I might still be blindsided, but I, at least I have a better understanding of, of, of what, of power plays and, um, and the dynamics and, uh, the, the challenges and the cost issues and the financing issues and, and, the even politic, uh, political issues and, and things like that, that, that lie behind, um, behind a, a mere transaction. Definitely. So, so it's it's um it's really benefited me because I have a better a bigger picture, I have a better view. Um, I'm able to make um, you know I'm, I, I think I can do better decision making. And coming from the private sector, I think I was able to an advisor to to give um, better quality advice to my to my boss, my
1: bosses. All right, from, from what I'm understanding is that you're looking at it now from a very holistic approach and you're able to see both sides of the coin and make and discern what goes where and what, what works best for whatever situation you're in, if I'm not wrong. And now that I
0: work in climate change and advocacy and, and that we're trying to uh to influence governments actually, um it's definitely benefited me because I know uh which buttons need to be pressed in order to get the results. And I think that's invaluable because you really need to know um how to get to the results. When I joined the public sector initially, um I was fighting all the fights and I learned to choose my my fights. You could, yeah yes. my battles, absolutely. So um so yes it, it's, it's, it's given me more exposure and I know which buttons to press, um, you know, you know, how to be more strategic into getting to the results I, I want to, to obtain, to achieve.
1: Yeah. Right. Great. So if that's the case, if you're offered to go work in the public sector again, under which conditions would you go back? I mean, you've mentioned doing things by the book, um, looking at a situation where there's less impunity and, and more enforcing of the law. So what, what other conditions would you like to go back to if you were to go back to a public sector?
0: Hmm. Um, okay. It would be a government where there's a clear statement that the health minister doesn't have the right to send any member of his family abroad for treatment, uh, in case they need treatment. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know if it's extreme, but it would be, for health, maybe, I, I, you know, I, I would be more open. But education, it would be a government where the education minister doesn't have the right to send um, his children abroad for um, their education. Uh, you know, or you know, and um, it will be um, a case where I have the decision power to make the governance changes that I deem necessary, and that's quite a lot, and a guarantee that justice will be served for anybody guilty of corruption. And in my country, that would mean a fairer judicial system and so much more, um, but I don't To be honest, um, I don't know. It's, it's really, it's really tough. I I think it's, how do you, because people say things. Right. It's easy to, to make commitments. Yes.
1: It's easier said than done. Yeah. Absolutely. So,
0: So, you know, this can be on paper and then you join and then everything changes. And and you have to leave again, or you know it's it, it's really tough. And I and I think there's no uh, to be really um, realistic. I need to be you know I think I was really I okay idealistic as a person um, before joining um, government. Um, mm-hmm. I'm more of a. Realists now. I think it, it's it's um, I, you know I think there are basic things that you can change, one at a time. Um, but it's really difficult to um, to make all the changes. It requires a change in the mindset, and I think that's something that we need to work early on. Um, you know, it starts in you know with children you know, in, in school and, and things like that. And for some people, uh, in a certain bracket of age or anything, I, I think it might be too late. So um, so that mindset, um, changing the mindset is really what needs to happen. Um, and, and, and definitely stronger in situations, because until we get that, any providential man can come and be providential for ten years, and then flip right. so your systems are your best um, bet, I would say, so that you know um, everybody has to 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 do it properly um, but you know yeah, I would say that um i don't know if i would i would go to i i, I wouldn't I would say i don't know. <laughs>
1: you never know
0: (laughs) but we never know so yeah yeah, that's why yeah I've also learned that anything you say can probably backfire at you I learned that (laughs) (laughs) I never say never
1: right that's fair enough
0: but I um, governance is my values and 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 I think my faith my values and You know, dictate that. I, I just can't
1: be part of a corrupt system. It bothers me. All right, so over the course of your career you also worked in climate change and with the work you currently do with Zeni Zeni, you address climate change and financial questions um please tell us please tell us what the reality what the reality is about working in such a critical and especially on two matters that are usually conflicting so we talk we're looking at finance and climate change so what are the what 's the reality of the situation on the ground because you know that 's where you're specializing in right now
0: yeah um thank you so basically um what happens with COVID is um, increased government spending needs. Um, you know, um, people needed. You know, nobody knew the the, the pandemic would, would would happen. In response to increased government spending in, in need uh, in relation to COVID, um, the governments are turning to um, the lending and debt markets to fund their um, their activities, their deficits, and uh, and and so for certain countries with investment um, grade credit ratings, so you know the the likes of uh, the countries who have like great ratings, um, it's quite straightforward, right? It's really easy for them to raise money to um, to get financing. For other countries, though, um, and that would be mainly the the low and lower income countries. Um, you know, they've reached or they've they've gone beyond um, the sustainable government debt levels. So um, it means that they need to renegotiate um, the terms of their existing debt um, in order to create the fiscal space um, to fund their deficits. And so basically, they need to. Um, to to get to renegotiate the terms of their existing debts. So if you look at Zambia, for instance, Zambia is a very, um, you know, it's a usual example um, when it comes to their debt levels in terms of exposure to China and and things like that. So many low and and middle-income countries um, are in discussions to, um, to take on or to change the term of the the existing debt. But at the same time, we have climate change impacts that continue to be felt um, uh, across the world and and, and also in Africa. And um, estimates of investments required to support a shift or transition to a low carbon or resilient economy or world. are quite significant. So what we focus on is really to make sure that whatever terms are negotiated from now on and whatever new debt is taken from now on um, is taking into account climate change um, um, climate change reality. So basically right. um, that means that if you're taking on new debt, uh, you, we want you, and we would want you to commit to uh, using part of this financing to uh, finance your just transition to a low carbon economy, to a lower carbon economy, to um, so that economies, for instance, for countries who depend a lot on fossil fuels, they can, you know, finance that transition. Or they can use it to um, to finance solar plants and, and and things like that. So really, um, that's that's the kind of of work that we are doing. So what does it mean? It means that we look at new mechanisms to um, um, new debt mechanisms. So you have uh, what people call um, climate change bonds or 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 uh, climate bonds. Or so you have basically people getting money and and the, the proceeds of the financing will will be um to support that that just transition. So um oh, and that's that's basically the kind of work that we're doing. So the question was you asked me, um how what's the reality about working in, in such the the a critical the the two matters that are usually conflicting, and and yes, because most people, um, at least in some countries in African governments, I've heard you know back back in the days during my time in government, I've heard uh, conversations whereby people were saying, "Oh, um, but what about we do have fossil fuels? Um, we want to use it to finance our development the same way um, developed countries." did uh, back in the back in the days so basically they had the opportunity to develop their economies based on fossil fuels and we don't because somehow um it's it's was a, a sense of 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 lack of justice because basically the, the the thinking was so we now have issues with climate change issues because mostly because of them and we have to align and it's not fair because it's it's more expensive for us to get um to to finance our transition and 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 things like that so so really that's that's a reality of of working with it we need to do a lot of advocacy work we need to get to the finance ministers we need to make sure that we have the right people attending um the the incoming cops uh, we we need to make sure that we have the the right people influencing the people who make the decision. Um, so we have the conversations. We um, we write the papers. We do the advocacy. We propose mechanism, financing mechanism. We we innovate in terms of the instruments that we can uh, we can suggest. And we have to really also um, uh, build the, the awareness. Because a lot of people don't, and including myself, I wasn't uh, a climate change uh, advocate, say, I don't know, 10 years ago. So um, so really, it, it, uh, so it's really about working and, and raising the awareness and making sure that people understand um, the, the risks and also the benefits of, of
1: uh, moving to a greener economy. All right. Great. Thank you so much for that. Unfortunately, this is all the time we have for today. So um, I'd like to close this off with this one last question. So what advice did you give to a young person out there who'd like to pursue a career path similar to your own? And what advice would you give your younger self as well?
0: Um, Similar to my own, I think everybody has their path. um, And you know and, and i think it's uh it's great to follow your your own and and not not replicate um because there's so much to learn by being you and and learning yourself as well because um along that you know during that time i actually um managed to i i, I learned a lot about myself that i didn't know um so but i would say um be open-ended and really there's nothing that you cannot do, but mostly have a plan. Uh, because one of the mistakes that I made when I was, you know, I, I used to do things um, purely out of passion or, you know, um, and, and in this case, moving to the public, se- public sector because I wanted to serve, I felt there was something to be done. Um, but apart from that, serving, fighting corruption, And all of this, Um, I didn't have a proper plan for my own career, right? So Mm -hmm. you need to design your own career to know uh, where you want to be. So I I think I learned that along the way. Um, I thought I knew, uh, but I didn't. Uh, I thought I had a plan, but my plan wasn't that clear. So I think you need to really carefully design your career. your career, where you want to be, and 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 that move to the public sector was not something that in my plan, in my original plan, I was going to say to stay in the private sector, right? Yeah. So I bifurcated. Do so you see that? And 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 basically um at when I did, when I made that decision, I should have updated my plan. And I think I got completely uh you know, absorbed into the, the 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 government work because it's it's a lot of work. It's it's really interesting. I learned a lot, and absorbed uh, so much that I forgot to um, to update my plan. And so I think it's really to design your career and know exactly uh, where you want to be, and and really know um, how do I put it your your call. You know, and I think it's really important to know what your call is, what you're meant to to be doing, what you want, and it can be many. You know, it doesn't have to be one. Uh, you know, my my goal or my call or my you know I need this is my my my. No, I think the plan changes, and you need to make sure you update it. Um, and so, um, so yes, that that's the advice I would give, and be open. Oh, networking really important and yeah. helped me greatly, um, you know, be open-minded to uh, meeting people, uh, learning about people, not being, um, how can I can, not, not being very, look behind the, the, the paint, you know, try to see, to get to know people more, not less superficiality and more, um, more real, deep relationships, and and yeah, that, that's that's the advice I would give, and and really hard work. You know, there's nothing, <laughs> there's no shortcut for, uh, for work. Working smart, yes, but but doing the work, and and avoiding the short, like the shortcuts. Sometimes, yeah, make making sure you you, you stand and you stay true to yourself and to your values and don't ever trade your values for anything. It's important. Integrity um, and
1: honesty and uh, yeah. Right. Thank you so much. I think that's very invaluable information you've provided with us today. And you've also like taken it to a very personal deep dive into your career and how you've grown over the the years between the private and public sector. Really appreciate for the gems that you've given us today. And thank you so much for your time um, and giving us a start on your schedule on the AOU podcast.
0: Thank you so much, Savannah. Thank you, Alex. Thank you, Randy.
1: Thank you for tuning into today's episode, we just had Isabel Jenny who serves as a legal expert for Zenny Zeni Sustainable Finance, whose mission is to demystify the role of legal work in public and corporate governance. We hope you got a glimpse of what Isabel is passionate about and what an ideal public system would look like. What is your mission and what are you doing to achieve it? At ALU, we believe in supporting young leaders as they declare their mission and embark on the journey to achieve it. If you already have a mission or feel like you're ready to declare your mission, then ALU is a place for you. Visit our website, www.aueducation.com, to apply to ALU. Remember, you can tune into our podcast on Spotify, Anchor, and Apple Podcasts. This is the ALU Podcast Entrepreneur Leadership in Africa Real Stories real experiences.